The world is not right. The social relations of capital produce our wrong life that cannot be lived rightly. Yet, the actuality of our predicament cannot entirely move us to a standstill before its edifice. Beyond the actual stands the echoes of the possible, from the past and towards the future. And therein sits the spirit of utopia, for those who remember. Today, Asset Horizon are joined by friend of the show and Zero Books author Bill Cashmore to discuss her latest book, We Hear Only Ourselves, Utopia, Memory and Resonance. We'll be covering memory, of course, but also marks and narrative from Block to the Black Panthers and so much more. Billy, welcome to the show. Hi, Adam. It is a pleasure. Okay, so just question one, just kicking us off. So start with just from the outset. Actually, we're going to start with the end of the book to some extent as well. Because it's also in the postscript of this piece. We call this a political postscript, not quite so much a philosophical one. But nonetheless, this is a book both of philosophy and one which is at the same time incredibly frustrated with the use and abuse of philosophy for life and the kind of philosophical writing that is so overdetermined by you know, the academy, respect of being examined, exams, and by the norms of theoretical writing as we see them today. So let's just forget for now the perennial and very marketable question, what is philosophy? And rather ask the question, how are we using philosophy and what's wrong with how we're doing it typically? Thanks. I mean, well, the first thing to say is I'm, I'm probably the last person who has the right to complain that too much philosophy is academic by virtue of often the way that I speak, the way that I speak in this book. I, I don't think it would be right to put myself amongst those amongst those people who feel that they can communicate philosophy and I think can communicate philosophy in a way that is kind of less beholden to the academy. I mean, that's that's not, I suppose, the way that I think through it. The way that I think about it and the, the relation that we have to the university today, at least in the UK, isn't really an academic relation. It's a material relation constructed around securing public funds via the production of employable individuals. And so claims that philosophy has become overly institutionalized seems to me to miss the rather important point that the institutions tend to hate us, right? (laughs) They tend to close us down. Lots of departments in the UK and the US are getting closed down because we're not producing so-called marketable individuals, right? Or employable individuals. What I suppose my more the, the the point that I try to make, at least in the introduction, is related to what you could, if you were being particularly harsh, think of as almost the court philosophy of the English-speaking world, which is some analytic philosophy informed by, if, for those who know, the kind of post-Quinean metaphysics of David Lewis. I've got a fair few thoughts about the development of contemporary reactionary movements, particularly the anti-trans movement, as being kind of a necessary outgrowth of analytic philosophy. The analytic philosophy itself doesn't really exist anymore because no one really thinks that you can say things by definition, right, after Quine's important article. But it is rather governed by a set of norms which say that philosophy ought to be written in a way that is fundamentally comprehensible. And... I don't think that that's so true, because I think that presumes that the primary goal of reading philosophy is to comprehend or to understand it. And I think that philosophy doesn't 
really do that or doesn't necessarily just do that. Philosophy is read to console us, to invigorate us, to articulate kind of what we already felt. And so if you remain like me, somewhat committed to the idea that philosophy should or can help us about to think about the world that we live in, which I think is probably actually quite a controversial premise, it, it has to remain at a remove from ourselves. So the idea that philosophy can be comprehensible or ought to be comprehensible to some kind of ideal reader seems to suggest that it must already always be articulable within the terms of actuality. Judith Butler has a really nice retort to some criticisms of their writing in this preface to the second edition of Gender Trouble, where they say something kind of interesting, which is that, well, queer people basically had no trouble understanding what I was getting at. This might look like academic technicality to certain people, but it doesn't read that way to queer people. In fact, like loads of queer people say that actually it helped reading Gender Trouble was a kind of important moment in their own journey and so on and so forth. So this kind of comprehensibility kind of pisses me off. But also, lastly, I don't really think that philosophy is something which can be used. Um, it's not like a tool that we can kind of stand back from. That's the old Hegelian argument, right? That thinking about philosophy as a part of a toolkit presumes that you are not yourself constituted by whatever that tool is. So insofar as um, philosophy is trying, the temptation to think of it as a tool might seem to diffuse some of the pretensions of philosophy to have no relation to the actual world. Thinking of it as a tool actually does the opposite because it assumes that philosophy is something we could just have done with when we put the tool down and pick up whenever we like. But um, instead, I think philosophy has always got to be thoughts comprehension of itself right there has to be that self-reflectivity which is not the kind of relation that i have to a hammer or a pencil right so and and in a sense that position is what animates kind of everything that i tried to say in this book and to an extent everything that i try to do elsewhere which is that we are caught up constantly in these contradictions and the attempt to kind of diffuse of them either through saying well we're going to make it more comprehensible or i'm just going to think about this in terms of practice in terms of utility in terms of use um for me does nothing more than obscure the complicated antagonistic relation that thought has to itself that must always be internal to any successful philosophy that's kind of the position and but with all that said I hope what that means is that you don't have to be educated in philosophy to get something out of reading philosophy. To do so would be to think that we're all basically just being examined the whole time, which isn't true, or at least hopefully isn't true. And so to read philosophy that you don't understand is not to have no contact with philosophy. In fact, I think that philosophy is only really good when you feel it escaping your understanding, because that's the kind of the, the alienation of thought from thought that I think philosophy, when it's being done correctly, is actually doing. So that's that's kind of the overall methodological standpoint of of, of at least this book. But I, I don't think that's original to me whatsoever. I think that's kind of an old point. Adorno writes about it in the third Hegel study called Scotenos, I think, uh, or How to Read Hegel. That's the good one. Go read that. 
Socrates made it his job to examine everybody, and that's why he was so annoying the Athenians rightfully killed the prick. I mean, that's there's, a, there's a tension here in terms of, well, as Mark Fisher once said, people want Nietzsche in the same way you want a cheeseburger, but that indigestibility is Nietzsche. And I think it actually relates a lot to the main concept of this book, which is utopia, because the question is, if you can't sort of comprehend, if, if you can't understand philosophy in a sort of a more immediate way, well, how can you ever sort of enter philosophy? How can you engage with it if it's not a tool that fits in your hand? And similarly, how can we think utopia insofar as utopia is nowhere? How can you, know, if you're not already in a utopian actuality, how can you think for a utopia, given that it's by definition non-actual? So I guess this leads into the second question, really. We're getting to the real meat of the book here. Which is that utopia, the, you know, the utopos, the nowhere, the non-place, is by definition, therefore, non-actual. So can we actually think utopia? You know, what is the relationship of utopia to the actual, as fiction and indeed as, as fabulation? Yeah, that's the question, right? So I suppose the central claim of this book well, at least, or the, or the kind of the fundamental one at the really at the beginning, is that the utopia must always be non-actual, right? So utopia comes out of this writing by Thomas More. He coins the term, but it's unclear, right, what the U in utopia means. <clears throat> it can either mean utopia, which is no place. It's, the U is kind of a, is an adverbial negation. Right, which is interesting. But then there's also the oitopia, which is that it's the good place. Now, for me, that's in a sense the whole story. Because once you have that position, or once you have the recognition of that doubled nature of utopia, right, you can't help but notice that what it's claiming is that this elsewhere is a good place, but that this elsewhere is also nowhere. Right? But in order to say that it's good, we have to know something about it, right? It has to have some kind of connection to actuality, right? So if utopia is to be anything at all, it has to kind of incorporate this um, self-antagonistic or self-contradictory, I should really say, relation to itself that emerges in the kind of terminological polyseme of the term. Or, and so can utopia ever be thought? Well, sure, right? The good place can be thought. The question is whether it can be thought as nowhere. But equally, if you really think of it as nowhere, it's not utopia because it's not good, right? Also, we need to make these distinctions between dystopia and utopia, right? We need to have some distinction between the good and the bad, right? Merely saying that something doesn't exist doesn't tell me why I, that should invigorate my politics at all, right? Um, in fact, if, you can say many things don't exist, right? But they have to matter, actually, right? And that's the key. Um, and so my, um, the kind of the first part of this book attempts to articulate the history of the concept of, of utopia, or rather the history of the idea of utopia, I should say, as oscillating between a kind of between these two positions, right? And attempts to rethink the concept of utopia as utopian narrative, which I hope is able to offer a kind of narrative response 
to a basically speculative or metaphysical problematic, while remaining to a degree metaphysically agnostic about the nature of the topos, right, in utopia, right? So to that extent, it's kind of Kantian because... Uh, because I'm, I'm trying to avoid these ontological questions, basically. And whether I sufficiently... Now, I'm not trying to avoid all ontological questions whatsoever. I'm just trying to say that to answer the question utopia ontologically, to give an affirmative answer, is in a sense to destroy what utopia is, which is contradiction, <laughs> or rather, which is, uh, which is constituted by its own contradiction. So, yes, utopia cannot but be actually thought. There's no such thing that is thought non-actually, but it's non-actuality can only ever be thought actually, right? That's the problem. And, the, the, and that's a problem that I don't try to resolve, right? I, I think that that's what's good about utopia. You opened with the words like, we live in the wrong world. I don't think there's any more true statement. In fact, that might be the only true statement. But, but that was a big claim. Don't hold me to that. But the... That means that any thought of utopia is also wrong. But utopia might have, and I think does have, a privileged position with regard to informing us about its own wrongness. And thus can be the engine of genuine moral action, which is kind of the, that thought, right? That we live in the wrong world. So we must try and do good, right? That's, in a sense, all I care about. It's, it's, for me, it's the only problem that I'm interested in. It just so happens that I think it's the most fundamental philosophical problem as well. Will? So <laughs> you're, avoiding, you're avoiding the ontological question. So I'm going to ask the sort of basic one from... The, the theological political fragment, right? Which is going to be the relationship. And you sort of get close to this when you touch up against Adorno's aesthetic theory with the shudder or the shock. I'm wondering, what is the relationship to you between the object of hope, right, historically, and irrespective of how that manifests phenomenologically, but its relationship with the opposition that's manifested in contemporary accounts of communization, political philosophy, whatever, between the opposition, between sort of a politics that approaches this question as fundamentally transcendental versus apparently a politics that approaches this question as fundamentally imminent. And I think there's an answer kind of already in what you've said just now. But if you could pull that out for us, that'd be great. It would be great if I could do that, wouldn't it? Okay, so so first of all, I have the ambition that this is a concept of utopia without hope. Because for me, hope is broadly speaking, theological category that I would hope has been displaced by our knowledge that if there is a transcendental, it is imminent to the development of history. 
So that I call the book We Hear Only Ourselves because I think that it's a quotation from Block that I also use as the opening quotation of the book. That, And there is, I think, a necessity to that kind of romantic thought of the transcendence of the small, tiny, beautiful moment, right? Uh, which you get in Adorno too. In Block, he talks a lot about just these, this contact with the most basic objects, right? It begins with the analysis of a picture with something inside it that's gone to you, right? That's, that cannot appear and draws out of that romantic um, affirmation of the, the necessary claim to infinity that human finitude requires, um, the idea of hope, I think. So phenomenologically, hope will appear at various points, but I'm not sure that I, I try to avoid it as a philosophical concept because I feel that it is to, to that degree sort of outmoded it's, it, 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 in its kind of theological affirmations. And then where this fits into the politics of a transcendental and the politics of imminence, I'm not so sure. I, I think that, I mean, if, if I'm trying to understand what you're getting at. I suppose that I would probably have a little bit more faith in the idea of the transcendental faith than others, but only insofar as it's a development of imminence. Equally, however, I'm not sure that anything imminent could ever be thought without its negation of that which it is not transcending, right? Because the concept of, of a limit, right? presupposes what goes beyond it, right? That's another old Hegelian argument. So I would probably, in terms of thinking through the opposition between the transcendental and the imminent, I think the utopia might, if we're thinking of transcendent to actuality, imminent to actuality, I would think that, or, or, or claim probably that, that utopia thinks that opposition right, thinks the self-opposition of each of those terms such that you could understand the conflict between those two positions as articulations as of as or material reflections. No, sorry, as the material contradiction of which the concept of utopia, the contradictory concept of utopia is the ideological reflection. That would be the slightly optimistic point. I'd have to think more about it. I, I, I deliberately avoid any direct talk of the transcendental and the imminent because I, as I, um, because I prefer to work with the kind of more modal categories of actuality and possibility and potentiality. But I recognize that that's probably a gap. Lastly, I, I, I really don't want to say that we shouldn't be doing metaphysics. I, I don't adopt that position. It's just that if it is a metaphysics, it's a metaphysics of negation, right? That would have to be a little bit more careful about its thought, thinking through of the concepts of truth and falsity, for example. And I certainly don't think that speculative answers are adequate to the problem of utopia or could give adequate answers to the problem of utopia. I hope that makes sense. Thank you.
these kind of poles, transcendental versus the imminent, which is not necessarily the same as the transcendent versus the imminent, I do think maps onto the ideas of uh, possibility and actuality insofar as we have the transcendental as a set of the set of conditions under which if something is to be actual, it has to conform to these in order to be possible and then in order to be actual actualized. And then we have the imminent thing, which is usually thought more in terms of already being an, an activity which is already happening within the world, imminence being from within, the transcendent always being sort of from above, outside, coming in. And I think you can definitely see this to some extent in the distinction you posit between two ways in which you, we are driven to think about utopia, which is one, the sort of the more drive-based imminence aspect of the utopian impulse to go beyond the actual. We stand at the limit of this world and all of its horribleness, and therefore in standing at the limit, we presuppose the thing that this limit is holding back, be it the horizon of a of communism, for example, or just post-capitalism, we'll need to term sort of in the, in the lines of sort of mid-2010s-ish or sort of futurism and accelerationism. And that is, is, yeah, the idea of the impulse versus the program, which you could arguably map onto a slightly more imminent impulse, which is the imminence of transcending a limit as we encounter it, and the very and the idea of transcendental program, which is the idea of the conditions of possibility under which utopia is to be realized. I think that, that you could map it onto that. But all this really ends up into the, the question of the impulse and the program. As you say, there's two ways we can think about utopia, certain in which way it kind of corresponds to Ernst Bloch's distinction, I think, between the idea of a warm and cold screams of Marxism, the transcendence of the moment, the victory moment when you finally beat the bastards, and these moments of resistance, and the cold stream where you're doing economic calculation about how much steel needs to come out at the end of the five-year plan. And th- these ideas of the, the utopian impulse versus the plan or schematic can we just unpack these a little bit in like your more sort of central framework, which is narrative, how these impulses of utopia and plans for utopia end up narratively playing out, and also how their tension between them becomes the kind of the you know the motor scheme that pushes forward the argument you're trying to make in the book? Goodness me. Okay. So to start with, I am unsure that we can map at all the concept of the utopian program to onto the concept of the transcendental and the utopian impulse, the concept of imminence. I can see why you would want to do so, but insofar as Ernst Bloch is the kind of prime example of the thinker of a utopian impulse, right, a glow deep inside which drives us away from what is towards what ought to be, right? I, well, I, yes, I, I, because he, he broadly speaking thinks that that drive is, is transcendent to history, right? Because insofar as transcendental and imminence are always relational terms, right? I think the important thing would be, well, to what, right? Transcendental or imminent to what? The more important point, maybe you could say, is that the utopian impulse would say that utopia is an uh, an imminentizing transcendental. Oh, sorry, an imminent transcendentalizing force, or something like that. Maybe you could say that, but I'd have to think about that for another year or so. But I so the utopian program and the utopian impulse. It is extremely kind of you to attribute that distinction to me. Um, unfortunately, I'd be doing a disservice to good old Frederick Jameson to whom that uh, distinction is is owed. So what these are, right, 
So you initially get something like Thomas More's Utopia, which appears to offer kind of a, a rather specific description of the way that a society ought to be run if it is to be better than our own, right? Uh, and that's conceived of as completely um, externally separated from ours, right? There's this great trench which is separates the rest of the world from Utopia, which in more stories a place which this guy has been and is coming back and is relating that. And they take lunch halfway through, which is great. And so that concept of Utopia then gets taken up by the famous Utopian socialists of whom Marx and Engels are so critical in various places. Engels famously in Utopia, Socialist and Sci- Utopian and Scientific. Oh, sorry, in socialism, utopia, and scientific, scientific, and then Marx and Engels in the Communist Manifesto itself, and, and in a few other places too. So after, and they criticise it for broadly, I think Hegelian reasons, which is that well, you're thinking about this as entirely separated from you, but in fact, it is only possible under given historical conditions, and is thus actually connected to to the world, right? Utopia then goes rather out of fashion, and you get this concept of scientific socialism in Marx, especially the later Marx. And Utopia is, is broadly speaking, rejected in almost all Marxism. And then you get this figure of Ernst Bloch, who writes this little book called The Spirit of Utopia, which is, I think, really fantastic. Um, uh, I really can't say enough about it, so I'm going to try and say nothing about it, basically. But... In that, he argues that the concept of utopia is this kind of force, which is an, it is an impulse which drives us towards an elsewhere, right? My point, right, and although that distinction is pretty obvious, right, if you look at the development of history, of the history of the concept of utopia, you can see that some people are doing one thing and some people are doing the other. My point is that they are incompatible with one another, but also require one another, and to an extent, I'm going to have to say that maybe that's something which I, I have to spell out you know, more in the book, and I do spell out more in the book. But really, really quickly, the idea is that the utopian program cannot be thought to be utopian unless it is thought to be good and that there is some kind of motivating force towards that goodness within actuality, which is kind of the utopian impulse. And equally, the utopian impulse cannot be freed of the utopian program entirely, because if there were no imagined program, no imagined utopia toward which we were being driven, there would be nothing utopian about this impulse, right? Um, There's a sense in which Bloch didn't, Jameson makes a really nice point, which is that Bloch kind of didn't have to imagine uh, which utopia we were being driven towards, because there was a Bolshevik revolution, right? That was the utopia that we were all being always driven towards. And that's, there's a real sense, I think, to which that, the block writes this in 1918, it's first published. And then I think there's a new, edi- a second edition in 1922, or some additions, additions are made. With regards to the distinction between the warm and the cold stream of Marxism, the utopian program is a distinctively anti-Marxist endeavour. So the distinction doesn't work or, or that, that mapping doesn't work because the utopian program, if you think like that, right, you can't really be a Marxist because you can't make the, that sort of claim on the basis that, that uh, consciousness is determined by life, not life by consciousness, right, which is a rather fundamental 
historical materialist premise. And so I, it's really interesting to me that you, that you saw that, that connection and maybe effectively there is that connection. But poor old Fourier, right? He was hardly cold, right? This is this is a guy who sees lemonade, right? You've got the lions with the with the really fast lions. You grow a tail, right, so you can play piano better and stuff like that. That doesn't sound rational and calculating to me. So it's it's rather unfair. But but sort of part of the argument here is that the utopian impulse. All these apparently merely programmatic utopias always require uh, an impulse, and equally, the merely impulsive utopias are always ushering in a program, whether usually surreptitiously. So that's the thought, right? And and by the way, that's uh, a result of that contradictory character of utopian, of, of, of the nature of utopia. So the distinction between the utopian program and utopian impulse is the terminological oscillation between the good place and the nowhere, which raised to the level of the concept, right? So rather than mere terminological distinctions, right? It becomes a matter of kind of truth and falsity and all these other philosophical categories. And that's the problematic to which I try to respond with the concept of narrative. I feel that I'm going on for far too long. And so where the utopian program and impulse fit into narrative, well, I think they don't. They are speculative categories, but we might narrate things which look like impulses or look like programs. And that concept of narrative is drawn primarily on the work of Paul Ricoeur, in the kind of mammoth work Time and Narrative, which argues that time, time is faced by an aporia, right, a, a contradiction, which can only receive a narrative response. So the kind of structure of, of, of We Hear Only Ourselves is broadly speaking borrowed from the argumentative structure of Time and Narrative, because I actually think that the, the problematic of the, of the, the apparatics or the aporia of time is actually structurally analogous to the problem of utopia as well. Mm-hmm. That's all in that's this is all in the first chapter, really. There are two more. <laughs> but but I but that's that's the kind of the, the big inaugural claim, right? And if I suppose if that doesn't get off the ground, then I'm not sure if anything anything else will fly for long. But but that's that's the, the gamble, I suppose. So when it comes to narrative, right, and particularly the arrival of more, but not just not just more, right? Like there was a period of, I mean, utopianism was a literary movement primarily in the beginning. I mean, if you, in the United States, for example, if you were to study utopianism in the 1950s, you'd be in a literature department primarily. But on top of that, not just Fourier, but also the sanitariums of the late 19th century, right? I'm thinking of Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain, right? This is a particular relation not to, not just to, not just to a non-place, but to a kind of arrival at a particular mode of existence. Um, and I'm wondering then when we take into account critiques of so quote unquote like material utopianism or like utopian programmatics i'm thinking of like samuel butler's erewhon right is there kind of when utopian narratives you say that they work right by identifying promises and recognizing that they've been broken that that's fundamentally 
why utopian narratives function. Do they then break down, though, when utopian narratives then sort of rearticulate themselves as, and here is how we will fulfill this promise with, with yeah, with better health. With, so oh, yeah. Is there, yeah. <laughs> so is there a relationship between mythology, utopianism, destiny, and something that we could call like, you and I were were texting a while back and a professor that you were watching a lecture from, I think it might've been Eddie and Balabar. You, you were like, there's ne- there's never been a non-eugenic civilization. Right. So yeah. Yeah. I said that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, it was in a seminar that we were in actually. Yeah. yeah. So that, that, that's always stuck with me. And I'm wondering if there's a relationship between the utopian narrative in literature and it's sort of co it's contemporaneousness with the arrival of psychoanalysis, eugenics, all of these other movements that attempt to posit onto August Comte's biocracy, that attempts to posit onto human materiality the promise of a utopian arrival that is sort of within the, the flattening of human experience with the administration of things. Yeah, so... I, I, I think that's that's it's really important. I need to think about the claim to the contemporaneity of utopia with those things. I mean, in so far as utopia appears at a lot of different moments, right? And so I would feel I would need to do, or whoever made that claim would need to do quite a lot of work to show you know, you of all people will know that that kind of grand historical claim might do quite a lot to subdue or to suppress those moments which are in a certain discourse minor, right, within within that history. So I am not sure about that. However, what I can talk about is the ambition to the administra- administration of the reduction of life, let's say. And that would be that that there is always a danger in utopia insofar as it affirms the possibility of goodness, right? And the articulability of goodness within actuality. It risks moving over to ideology insofar as it attempts to really articulate the good life. I would hope and I, all those things to me, right? Although they're complicated, the the kind of the the pattern with regard to, with regard to utopia is the attempt. Right? I have thought how life ought to be administered, whether that's according to a racialized logic, whether that's due to a kind of a Darwinian logic of of the improvement of human biology, right? Which is all think that they have identified goodness and now are working to implement it. Right, but would I think in all of those cases fail to see how they are historic, how their thought of goodness is historically mediated by a particular moment? Right, even Darwin. Right, there's this famous letter that Darwin writes. Right, he says, "I didn't understand how evolution worked until I went to a workhouse, a Victorian workhouse in Manchester, one of the very same that Engels was looking at." Right, bingo. Right, <laughs> because that then attempts to uh, ascribe to nature some. A, an understanding of that nature, which was really historically specific, right? So 
my constant thought and why I think Utopia is so good is because it in the concept of Utopia is so good um, and 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 so important for political action is that it builds that negativity, that skepticism that you have really thought the good life um, into itself. Because by its dual claim that it is good and that it is nowhere, it bears critically on the existent, right? Um, uh, the concept of utopia bears critically on the existent. But any affirmation of the actualizability of utopia, I think, does bleed over into ideology, which I think someone more better educated on this stuff than me could show how that was actualized eugenically in many a situation. I hope that makes sense, but this kind of almost negative utopia that I arrive at close to the end of the book, I hope wouldn't be so beholden or wouldn't be so liable to make make those errors or to be co-opted or whatever by such a politics, such a eugenic politics. Fingers crossed. Well, actually, just to, just to flip back a little bit to this notion of narrative, although I said we are talking about narratives, internal conflict, it's internal, as you the term you use a lot in the book, is the aporia, which in a way goes back all the way to Socrates, the early sort of dialogues where rather than, for example, like in the Republic, where Socrates would point out all the contradictions in these positions and then go, here's a great, lovely narrative or a great, lovely mythology of reason, to use a term derived from the German idealists. The early stuff, it just ends in this aporia, this conflict, in which we simply need to encounter ideas again for the first time in light of the false. But another aspect of narrative, even the narrative philosophy, as it encounters the idea of the falsity, falsity, and is communicated all the way from Socrates to us today, at least in the sort of the Western, the modern European philosophical tradition, as it has been historically produced and mediated is that there is this question of narrative in relation to communication and the transmission of narrative. And this opens up the space for talking about, as you said before, the history of such narrativizations. And to extent, maybe even the genealogy thereof, and particularly in terms of genealogy and transmission, there is also the question of tradition, literally traditio, what is handed down, and the question of memory in the carrying of that, trend, of that tra- tradition. So what does it mean, in a sense, for narrative to engage with concepts like tradition and memory in relation to the utopian? So it's my... So in in the kind of the middle part of the book, I encounter this question of how to claim that utopia is good without just subordinating or the utopian narrative has any relation to goodness that escapes a mere promotion of goodness via its kind of impact or its use right for reasons that i hope would be vaguely obvious by now that's not going to do for me because and to an extent that would mean that the concept of utopia wouldn't be that interesting because it would just be well okay it's got to be a narrative and then which narratives are good or not depends on questions about under what circumstances will they lead to certain kinds of human action. 
which isn't what I try to do. So the concept of memory for me is brought in as an attempt to respond to what I call this kind of secondary or the second aporia of utopia, which is the problem of normative grounding, which is the claim that utopia's goodness seems like it cannot be external to itself so that it does not subordinate say, itself to kind of a, a more a claim to a transcendent ethicality. But similarly, the concept that goodness cannot be internal to the idea of utopia because narrative is either really his, historical, which is to say it has a debt to whatever has actually happened, right? It has this obligation built into itself to tell things as they occurred or they're fictional, right? In which case they have basically poetics. It's the study of, of the ends of, of, of fictional narrative. So to me, it looks basically like utopian narratives, goodness cannot be internal or external. So the concept of memory is, is drawn in because I think that, take a guess, a utopia is apparatic, sorry, memory is apparatic in a similar way. In, and this is, again, something drawn really from Ricoeur, who thinks through kind of two traditions of memory, one which thinks of memory as the the apparition of what is no longer there, which is kind of the platonic concept of anamnesis, and the remembering of something, right, which is the Aristotelian mode. So the sense in which I think memory can be utopian is through the remembrance of promises made to those in the tradition of the oppressed and the recognition that those promises have not been fulfilled, that they have been broken. And you get that, I think, through Benjamin's concept of the dialectical image, which I tried to spell out and which I, I, I hope can build in again that that contradictory character into the narrative right that contradictory character of utopian memory and offer again a kind of narrative response where that normative grounding then comes from is the fact that and i'm sorry to all my dear nietzschean friends we have a debt to the past we have a debt to those people those people who have struggled against oppression and that debt emerges from the fact that we that the the, the 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 liberated society has not been achieved. But notice now that because the debt right exceeds the narrative as insofar as it is the attempt to articulate the promises that were made to something that is no longer here. But that articulation can only ever occur in terms of the narrative itself. So it kind of builds in an externality as internal to the narrative itself. And I hope via that concept of debt responds at least narratively to the promise, promise of, of norm, or to the problem of normative grounding. That's so that chapter talks about Benjamin primarily, but then some stuff on Adorno towards the end. I also have explained a couple of concepts of utopian memory, one of which in a certain mode got rather popular a few years ago, which is sounds quite a lot like the concept of lost futures uh, in Mark Fisher, Mark Fisher's writing, which sounds something like this, right? There were these articulations of things which could have been better. We must now use those to our own ends. 
right? That's almost, it sounds a little, it's a, it's a little bit like what Block says, right? And actually there's a kind of parallel. So for all those who are sort of attracted to this, because I'm talking about memory, right? And it's hauntology. Well, and it's related to hauntology and lost futures and all that sort of stuff. I, I really don't think that that concept works because it reduces, um, it, it's not going to be utopian whatsoever. And thus, for that degree, I think beholden to the actual, insofar as it attempts to, it, it does not realise how those futures are themselves mediated by the actuality that we currently are in, right? Those futures are genuinely lost, right? And any attempt to articulate them is just as much a part of the present as we are. And so I talk about Bloch there, and then I also talk about Marcuse, who has in some ways, I think, a slightly more interesting concept of utopian memory, but one that I, I think ends up belying his concealed Heideggerianism that he attempted to escape, but failed. So that's, 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 that's the second chapter. It's interesting you bring up Nietzsche. Oh, sorry. Well, it's interesting you bring up Nietzsche, because I think Nietzsche was, was somewhat agree with you in the process. It's not that we have to, but rather, I mean, the second essay upon the genealogy of morals is basically a transcendental deduction of the capacity to make promises which requires that structure of debt. And insofar, so therefore, if there are failed promises on the behalf of the oppressed, there is therefore a debt structure corresponding to them. And maybe to an extent, I may, I maybe I think maybe responsibility would fit more than debt, because the sense in which the problematic for Nietzsche is almost like the, the, the longer the world goes on, the higher the debt is, and the more sort of impossible it is to pay it back, which is his whole thing where, why, why Jesus has to come down and get crucified to cancel the debt. But then again, it's cancelled by a sort of divine omnibenevolence, which intensifies that debt. But that's that's neither here nor there. Um, I just wanted to sort of turn a little bit more to one of the sort of the sort of underrated elements, I guess. I think in this book, which is another one of the many other reasons to buy it, folks, is this has some of the really sort of the first I've ever seen engagements with some work of Huey P. Newton. The Black Panther's fame, of course, and particularly his works on Nietzsche and dialectics and indeed energetics, which honestly blows a lot of sort of the attempts at sort of left Nietzscheism out of the water in my experience. I mean, it, this stuff isn't actually published, it's all archival research of, 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 of your own here from the Huey P. Newton archives. Can we actually unpack a little bit about Huey, Huey P. Newton, inspiration, people like Fred Moten, Sadia Hartman, and these main aspects of utopia here, which is that utopia these of the energy that impels utopian narrative into being is a narrative uh, within actuality but it is what is within actuality is resistance to it yeah so if, if i'm entirely honest the the third it for me the, the the third chapter is where all the stuff that i'm to an extent proud of happens so i actually first came across thinking about utopia in this way through some kind of the odd statement that Fred Moten, the great philosopher, poet, performance artist, jazz musician, that he, that he would say about utopia. And there was this little preface to The Poetics of the Undercommons, which is written by Fred Moten, by Stefano Harney, his collaborator, called Utopia and the Undercommons. And it claims, right, that, that utopia is really nowhere it's the kind of the it's it's the impossible place and harney claims that that place um fits broadly speaking with the caribbean insofar as there is no history there was no history in the in the sugar plantations 
on the Caribbean because um, the reproduction of life was not accomplished through biological reproduction, but rather through the importing of new life, right? And basically the life expectancy of slaves was was unbelievably low, right? It was a essentially genocidal endeavor. And so I thought started thinking about utopia that way. And when in a kind of caffeine-induced stupor in a library somewhere, I started, I I, I was trying to find some old writings that might sort of see where this was coming from because it, I, I didn't know where this idea of utopia as it was appearing a little bit in Fred Moten here and there in Saidiya Hartman as well in her book Scenes of Subjection and elsewhere and it was a, it appearing broadly speaking what Fred Moten has has called black studies and what is becoming increasingly known as black studies and so I yeah in said caffeine induced stupor found that someone had cited an article by Huey P. Newton called Utopia Universal Energy. And so Huey P. Newton was the founder of the Black Panthers and is known for his writings primarily on revolution and resistance, particularly in revolutionary suicide. He does have some published writings on this kind of thing. So there's the Notes on the Will to Power, which is published, I think that is in Revolutionary Suicide, but it might be published in the Hugh P. Newton Reader. I can't remember. So there, there are those sorts of things out there. And Howard Cagle's work on the philosophy of the Black Panthers is absolutely essential for this. And I wouldn't have been able to make any of these claims without, without that work. But he, but Hugh P. Newton wrote this article called Utopia Life, Life Energy, Universal Life Energy. He actually crossed out the life really interestingly in the manuscript. Yeah, and there he argues that Freud's concept of of the drives, Nietzsche's concept of the will to power, and Mao's concept of contradiction, it's, he says Marx, but it's kind of really Mao's concept of dialectical contradiction, are one and the same thing. And then there's this article in Utopia uh, called Utopia Life Energy, Universal Life Energy, where he says at the very, very end, he, he, he starts by echoing kind of Marcuse's critique of the idea of utopia because it casts socialism into the future, into an unattainable future rather than it being something which we could really achieve now if we just got our act together. Whereas, and but by the end, he says something like this, which is that utopia is energy. And kind of interestingly, energia is an alternate word for actuality in the in in the kind of post-Kantian philosophical tradition, energeia and actus, right? That which makes something happen, right? And so, by the end of the book, I I'm I'm trying to you know connect this history of thinking through utopia as energy in black radical thought. However, I think that Fred Moten his contribution is is to be a little bit more skeptical about the articulability of that energy within actuality. Hubie Newton's work is really deeply unappreciated, underappreciated, partially for a lot of reasons, uh, um, certain reasons about the suppression of the work of the Black Panthers as a legitimate political movement by racism and anti-blackness, but but also to an extent because Hubie Newton was very very specific in his in his will about what he didn't want to be published. And so it, it hasn't been published actually because of this Newton's estate. And so that was the difficulty. So, but nonetheless, Fred Moten's contribution, and I think the contribution of especially Saidiya Hartman, 
is to reframe this in terms of a problematic of the telling or the relating of black life as an impossibility within an anti-black world, right? That's how they frame it. In the case of blackness and in Venus in Two Acts by Sadia Hartman, the case of blackness is Fred Moten's essay, they, they articulate this as an impossibility. And my attempt towards the end is to think that of as, a, as a basically utopian move, which I actually think has precedent in the, in that in that literature, which I, and I hope that there are enough quotations to sustain that claim. I think that there are, but so what that does, I think, is it opens up the two things: one, the centrality of the struggle against anti-blackness to contemporary political uh, um, movements, right? The, or rather the claim that that must be central. But then also to, to an extent, therefore, articulate the cent necessary centrality of utopia as well, insofar as I think that utopia might have conceptual a kind of a, a privileged position with respect to the articulation of that, of those subject positions. That's the claim. So in, in a sense, it really, the, the, in terms of how it worked, actually, I, I, I wanted to say the stuff in the third chapter first, right? That was the thing that I, that was the first thing that I came across. And actually everything else was sort of maybe trying to spell out how I got. And so, yeah, I, if this does any, I really hope that I do justice to that literature. It's difficult because obviously I'm a white person, right? Trying to articulate this stuff. And I do my best basically to just let that writing speak for itself. And I think actually it's, it's all pretty much articulated in various places already by, by Motum himself. But I, I do my best maybe to frame it at least in the concept of how that fits into a longer tradition of utopianism. That's the kind of the scholarly ambition of, of the last chapter. If that makes any sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to do my thing and bring it back to the place that I always, I always do. So obviously the relationship between utopia and impossibility I'm wondering if we can articulate this as utopia as a practice of a negated impossibility. So I'm thinking primarily of the particular treatments of the Pauline epistles that we get in everyone from Agamben to Bidou to Tari, even to Tronti's later work, who recently passed away. There's there's the famous utilization of the Haas no, right? The as not, act as not one, that as not things are as they are, but use your position, right? Paul's entire point to those enslaved is to find sort of a use in their position under the Roman Empire, right? So I'm wondering, is there then... So, so one of the things that's sort of interesting about QEP Newton putting Mao on contradiction, Nietzsche on the will to power, and Freud's notion of, of drive together, I'm wondering if there's necessarily a relation then between, because all of these things, right, 
have a trajectory. They don't have a teleology necessarily, and especially Nietzsche doesn't, right? He'll, He'll oppose that probably. But if we're going to look at sort of trajectory and negation as the basis of <laughs> of utopianism where then does your understanding of adorno's negative dialectics come into this because yeah <laughs> because the first chapter of negative dialectics right has a relationship primarily to adorno adorno bridges his position on the actualization of philosophy and the failure of the second international like for him the moment to to abolish philosophy through its actualization has passed like it's gone <laughs> um, so all of these very delicate articulations that we get in your book whether it's newton's treatment of those three figures or scenes of subjection I'm wondering now, like, what is the relationship between, fundamentally between utopia as an impulse and utopia as fundamentally a negation of, of, of the present state of things in, res- in relation to its fundamental impossibility? Right. So I there's a lot there. So I, I I can't say what the relation to say something like Paul's letters would be, although I read those letters quite a lot. I'm not certain that I could say anything of merit <laughs> about their relation to the concept of utopia insofar as they are so, so much older. Um, And um, I, what I could maybe say is that I'll just gesture towards the last chapter of the spirit of utopia in which Bloch models the problem of the imagining of, of the, of socialist societies on the problem of the afterlife for Quinean theology which I kind of touch a little bit on in the afterword through the kind of the, the concept of hell, which um, and given Aquinas' relation to the concept of actuality, um, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's a suggestion, but really nothing more. With regard to the Adorno relation, that comes from the fact that I think in the last chapter that the problem of I mean, for one, both the Frankfurt School, or at least Adorno's thought, and Black Radical thought are both attempts to think through genocide. They are both philosophical responses to holocausts, right? You have the Shoah, and you have have the transatlantic slave trade, which I think both are thought of basically as genocides. And the, the attempt to think through their historical necessity and their historical impossibility right as as bound up with one another seems to me to be kind of an irresistible similarity it's not one that i stake my argument on what i stake my argument on is simply the fact that they say very very similar things about utopia but to be clear i think that moton 
and black radical thought does a better job of articulating the politics of utopia than Adorno does. I mean, it's something like negative dialectics, right? It's, I, 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 I love that book, but it's, it's a, a deeply, deeply pessimistic book in some ways, to the point of almost being kind of snide points, which is kind of why we love Theodore Adorno, catty bitch. But, but I think the logic there is more important than the politics, right? The politics, I, 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 th- I think when Adorno cashes it out, um, actually Marcuse's like, later work arguably does a better job. The attempt to think the relation between utopian impulse and utopia as a negation, right? I think that utopian impulse is, the thinking through utopia as an impulse is problematic, right? That's the first chapter. So I really hope that I've, to an extent, moved beyond it. That said, there, I, I, the, I think probably the argument retains an element of that idea of utopia as something that is internal to history, right? As that moment or as the moment of resistance within actuality, the non-actual within the actual, right? And so by the time that you get to the impossibility of utopia as internal to actuality, Right, internal to actuality, which is something like what I what I think when you say something like the utop- utopia is negation, you could think of that, I suppose, as the narrative recoding of the tradition of the utopian impulse. Maybe that would be fair enough. So, I, for example, don't think that I, I, I'm I'm not sure I'm about whether the moment for philosophy's actualization has passed that's a, a question for i think probably another another day if not another person but it would i wouldn't want to suggest too much similarity between my politics and theodore adorno's to say the least what i probably would say is that he has a lot that's right about the nature of the problem problematics of utopia and indeed the problematics of morality which as i said kind of invigorate so much of the way that i think about things so in his lectures on the problems of moral philosophy he adopts a basically nietzschean position with regard to the contradictory status of moral norms which i argue in the book is identical to that problematic found in 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 black studies right via fred moton and sidia hartman in particular yeah so that, again it's a structural similarity but there are actual some sim- sim- actually some similarities in content as well and, and in terms of the philosophical claims that they're making so that's yeah that's that's it i, I don't feel like i've answered your question at all there actually but i've done my best <laughs> Well, just to, to, to go with the acronym we're using for this book, Woo. Woo. You can now buy Woo. It's not Woo Woo, it's just Woo, folks. It's not Woo Woo, it's not Woo Woo, it's just Woo. We hear only ourselves out by the end of this month, actually, on Zero Books, the second in the Zero Utopia series, along with Rashid M. Rabti's uh, Inconstant Dreamers, well, Disconstant Dreamers, which you can also watch the video on on the Zero Books YouTube channel. I believe there are also some events coming up to promote this book, Billy. 
Yes, there are. So on the 9th um, of October, which is quite soon, uh, I'll be in the, the Royal George pub in Deptford, a fantastic pub, uh, where I will be reading some of this and then mm. drinking some beer. Uh, I will then, there will be some other dates which are um, in various bookshops, I'm afraid um, in London, um, uh, because that's where I live and that's where I can afford to go. <laughs> and I'll post be posting dates for those and times and things like that pretty soon. Uh, maybe we could put those in the description if and when those come up absolutely also we will be there (laughs) oh yeah yeah oh yeah we will also be there i forgot yeah we will be there so we'll be there there'll be more asset horizon ish live events you have of course next it's probably over by the time this comes out but there will be also something for us or our book on in november but we'll announce that close to the time all we need to leave off with with this now is to once again thank you billy for coming back onto the show we hear only ourselves utopia memory and resistance out now on zero books buy it buy it buy it often buy it daily buy it whenever you can but we'll catch you folks later we appreciate your support of the imprint and the channel Subscribe to Zero Books today on Patreon. Your material support helps us to promote a variety of perspectives on the left. Also, discover the many titles, new and old, that Zero has curated. Navigate to any of the links in the show notes to extend your support.